So our adventures in audio amplification are continuing tonight. Can everybody hear me? Anybody not hear me? Wait, raise raise a hand. No, okay. So I want to continue tonight uh, along with a series of talks that I've been offering uh, on the five aggregates during this month. So those five types of experience, the five uh, categories of experience that the Buddha particularly recommended we pay attention to and learn about and come to understand. So far I've spoken about uh, rupa, the field of physical experience, materiality, and vedana, the field of pleasure, pain, neutral feeling, and sanya, the dimension of perception, that recognizes and uh, orders and gives meaning to experiences. So that brings uh, me this week to the aggregate of Sankara. Sankara, which as many of you know, is very difficult to render into English. Um, There's really not an adequate translation of it. Bhikkhu Bodhi uses volitional formations these days in most of his translations, although he readily admits that there are problems with that. Uh, Tanisaru Bhikkhu likes to use mental fabrications. Uh, Ajahn Suchito calls them mental programs, kind of analogous to the, the program that runs in a computer. The sankaras he sees as being like the programs that run in the mind. And we see a variety of other translations as well. Um, Mental compounds, mental compositions, cognitive processes, cognitive activities, things along these lines trying to capture the meaning of that Pali word sankara. The English word uh, construction has some linguistic parallels to the word sankara. Um, I'm a bit of a language geek, so I like it for that reason. So the word construction is made out of the Latin prefix con, meaning together, and struyere, meaning to, to heap, to pile, to build. So construction means heaped together, built together. And sankara has a kind of similar structure. So the, the san at the beginning, that's a prefix meeting together. It's very similar to, to khan in Latin. And then it has the root uh, kara, which is usually rendered as doing or making. Uh, if you're familiar with Spanish, Spanish has the same concept of hacer, which can be doing or making. It's not really a distinction there, but this idea of kind of a causative or creative activity. So sankara, uh, literally, is, translates as uh, made together, or done together, created together. So it's not only hard to find an English translation to use for sankara, um, but it's also somewhat difficult to get a grip on what it actually means. Uh, not in small part because it's actually used in a variety of different ways in different places in the canon and the commentaries. Uh, In the Abhidhamma, in the Buddhist psychology, the term sankara serves as a catch-all for uh, any and everything that the mind might do, all the mental activities and functions that don't fall under vedana or perception or consciousness. (laughs) Those three get singled out 
everything else, you know, 50, song, 50 mental factors, activities of mind are all considered sankhara. So it's kind of a, an everything else that your mind might do, the sankhara. Um, but I don't want to get into <laughs> Abhidhamma tonight. I don't want to talk about all of those aspects of sankhara. Um, but I do want to try to offer um, just really a few thoughts on some of the aspects of, of sankhara that we actually encounter uh, with some regularity directly in our meditation and that I've found particularly interesting and insightful in practice. Bhikkhu Bodhi's term, volitional formations, the one that he likes, uh, gets at the significance of sankhara uh, as a particular type of mental activity. So sankhara are the activities of mind that construct our cognitive framework, our intellectual model of the world. Everything that we do or make with the mind out of the other various elements of experience, everything that we construct. And there's always volition involved in that process, always some kind of doing. It's an active process. It doesn't happen passively or by accident or at random. There's always some degree of volition, which doesn't mean uh, deliberate uh, intention necessarily, but there's an active element to it. Uh, In some ways, it's more appropriate to say that we're human doings rather than human beings, uh, because this is very much what defines us, our particular species, the kinds of minds that we have, that they're active, that they're always doing, creating, sankharaing, Kind of a simple working definition uh, for how we experience sankhara is their uh, thoughts and emotions. You know, those are, that's kind of the colloquial terms that we use in English that capture a lot of sankharic activity. And that's how we tend to be aware of the sankharas, um, mostly in practice in our culture. Um, So sankharas are more or less what we think of as the complex and sophisticated faculties of the mind. So beyond just simple feeling, beyond just simple perception, beyond just simple consciousness. It's what we might think of as the functioning of the the newer mind, the the fresher mind, the uh, more uh, evolved mind, the higher mind in evolutionary terms. It's that creative capacity of the human mind to make something, do something with their experience. That's what really makes us so powerful, uh, both for better and for worse. The important distinction between sankhara and other mental activities, I think, comes from, again, the volitional part of volitional formations. So it might not be entirely clear what sankhara covers, but the Buddha was pretty clear about how it's different from the other three aggregates. So feeling, perception, and consciousness are all uh, passive. They're all automatic. They're all produced spontaneously when the necessary conditions are met. So if we're awake and we have functioning sense organs and there's some kind of stimulation of them going on through contact, then the mind automatically registers an experience and responds with some sense of vedana, how pleasant, unpleasant is it? Is it just kind of neutral? 
what what perceptions might be triggered by that experience? Is it a chipmunk? Is it a cookie? <laughs> is it coolness? Is it rain? And none of that process is what we would call volitional. It just keeps happening automatically. It's actually said to be uh, resultant, resultant experiences, the result of past karma, the result of ways that we've used the mind, conditioned the mind in the past. So depending on everything that's happened from the Big Bang up until this moment, uh, we feel pleasure or pain, we perceive things in a certain way, whether we like it or not. The Buddha said that kama, or karma, as it's often pronounced in Sanskrit, uh, is experienced as vedana. Karma is experienced as vedana. So, you know, for sure we do find in the suttas, in the ancient teachings, these um, eye for an eye (laughs) explanations of the working of karma. You know, if you murder in this life, you'll be murdered in the next life. If you steal in this life, you'll be poor in the next life. Those kinds of explanations of the working of karma, um, which is a little different, you know, a little difficult for us as modern Westerners to know what to do with those teachings, you know, although they still make sense within many Asian uh, cultures, Asian frameworks. But we also find these more subtle teachings um, that explains karma in terms of the Vedana that we experience, which makes a lot more sense in our own experience. So, Not that kama is what makes positive or negative things happen to us per se, um, but it explains how we respond to whatever happens to us, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. And that may be positive or negative in itself. So do we respond to our losses with grief or do we respond with compassion? Do we respond to our successes with gratitude or do we respond with pride? You know, those, those will produce different feeling tones, different experiences of pleasure or pain, depending on the quality of the mind. So there is this uh, teaching that that's how the effects of, of karma are, are felt, depending on how the mind is conditioned, how does it respond. And some of those responses will be pleasant and some will be unpleasant. So sankara, then, is, is everything that might follow on after... Uh, the initial impact of an experience after that initial automatic processing that the mind performs. Sankara is what we make or do with that experience that's, uh, that's extra, extra credit, that's constructed, that's fabricated, that's proliferated. So that very often includes what we recognize as thinking or emoting or intending, from which speech or action may then follow on, which is a broader definition of sankhara that's also used. So not just the mental fabrications, the mental activity, but then everything that proceeds from it. Right? Everything begins in the mind and then may manifest in verbal or bodily uh, fabrications. I find it really interesting in observing the mind to notice the point at which its mental process crosses that line crosses the line from uh, the simple passive automatic processing of of vedana and sanya, of feeling and perception, uh, into the volitional realm of sankhara. Um, Because it's not so clear exactly where that line is. It's not so clear in the teachings themselves exactly where that line is. So with, um, with perception in particular, 
the descriptions of it in the texts indicate that a certain amount of um, very basic verbalization or very basic uh, ideation, conceptualization, we might say, uh, is included as part of that recognizing function of perception. So, you know, if I see a chipmunk running around, um, perception will recognize non-verbally that it's a familiar experience. And perception may also produce that word or image or idea of chipmunk in the mind, just in in an automatic way. Um, But then if I'm, say, using the the noting technique, (laughs) if I'm labeling what it is I'm experiencing or perceiving, um, or even if I'm not, uh, just automatically, there may be a further conceptualizing of the experience. And it may be the same thing as the initial recognition. It may just be that word or image or idea of chipmunk. Um, but there's a different quality to it. There's a little bit of a different flavor to it, that flavor of, of volition, of more active doing, of intentionality. Uh, I, find that, I find that terrain very interesting to explore. So just maybe in a very subtle way, uh, the mind is doing or making something of the experience that's that's extra, that's added. It wasn't originally there. And there's not really a right or wrong answer to that, but uh, it's an interesting exploration to get a feel for that quality of intentionality, the quality of volition, which is something that very often does become more clear as we get more quiet. We may start to see that strand of experience more. Of course, sankhara is not always a subtle activity of mind. Uh, Very often it is a glaringly obvious activity of mind with really no way of missing it. Uh, This is from uh, the the Madhupindika Sutta, the ball of honey uh, discourse. What one feels, one perceives. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one papanchasizes. Through the process of papancha, the agent then becomes the victim of their own patterns of thinking. Based on what a person papanchasizes, the perceptions and categories of papancha assail them with regard to past, present, and future. No? (laughs) We all know that one. (laughs) So papancha is uh, kind of sankara, run away on the tracks. Papancha is, is sankara. Uh, you know, volitional mental formations, fabrications, activity that have just gone off the rails. Uh, sankara on steroids, or uh, Sankara 4D, <laughs> Sankara IMAX, you know, overload, overload Sankara. And very often, this is our first direct awareness of the activity of Sankara um, through its more extreme manifestations. You know, usually that's where we tend to really pick up on it when we first start paying attention. How the mind creates a whole world, a whole uh, scenario, a whole population uh, constructed entirely out of concepts, ideas, thoughts, emotions, desires, other bits and pieces of mental activity. And then 10 or 30 or 60 minutes later, the bell rings and we realize that we've been completely transported you know, out of reality and into that constructed, fabricated world. And very likely we also notice coming out of that that we're all tied up in knots, 
right? That it's really had a, a strong emotional effect on us and not for the better. I think these early kinds of meditation experiences around papancha have a lot to do with why we almost invariably develop an aversion to thinking, to the field of sankhara early in our practice. Um, It's very common that early in our practice we get preoccupied with uh, how do I get the thinking to stop? You know, what's the magic bullet? What are the tricks? How can I calm the mind down, get rid of this thinking? Um, Which in itself is interesting because that's not a preoccupation that we tend so much to develop with regard to the other aspects of experience, with the other aggregates. Um, So with the body, for example, uh, we may want to get rid of the unpleasant feelings in the body, but we don't usually have that preoccupation, how can I get rid of the body? I want to get rid of this body. Um, If and when the body does start to kind of disappear, we're usually not at first so delighted with it. (laughs) We don't really so much want to lose that one. Um, and it's the same thing with the other aggregates. So we, we uh, don't usually want to get rid of the whole field of feeling. You know, we maybe just want to get rid of the unpleasant side of it. But the pleasant side of it, we definitely want to keep. And same thing with perceptions and consciousness. We're probably actively alarmed by the prospect of those disappearing. You know, those aren't things that we want to clear out. Um, but with Sankara, you know, with the, with this aversion tends to develop of how do I get it to stop? How do I get away from all this mental proliferation? It's so burdensome. You know, we can feel like we just want to get away from it. It's not helping us at all. Um, whereas it's not actually the thoughts that are bothering us, of course, but the, the unwholesome mental states that are driving them, which are themselves also Sankara. And all of the hindrances are, are mental fabrications fabrications. So papancha is that heady cocktail of uh, thought combined with greed, hatred, and delusion, and volition. And you put those ingredients together, and you get a lot of mental suffering. But aversion to thoughts is actually one of the ways that we cling to sankhara. That's a way of grabbing hold of it, trying to control it, wanting to get rid of it, which is just the other side of wanting to hang on to it. So clinging through struggle, clinging through struggling with thoughts and emotions, uh, any kind of struggle really, struggle to make it stay, struggle to make it go, struggle to make it change, struggle to keep it the same. Creating any kind of an adversarial relationship there, making a big deal out of them, uh, is an aspect of delusion. Thoughts and emotions, all of the the mental sankharas, mental activities, just like everything else, uh, they are what they are. You know, they have their own nature, their own characteristics, their own functions. Uh, Not inherently any kind of a problem or really a big deal. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove, and not to Pindaka's Park. And deep into the night, a certain deva of stunning beauty appeared, illuminating the entire Jetta's Grove and approached the Blessed One. She paid homage to him and stood to one side and said, Tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. The Buddha responded, By not staying still, friend, and by not struggling, I crossed over the flood. But how is it, sir, said the deva, that by not staying still and by not struggling, you were able to cross over the flood? When I was still, I sank. 
but when I was struggled, I was spun about. It is in this way, friend, that by not staying still and not struggling, I crossed the flood. Life is actually very difficult without sankara. That's why we have it. That's why we've evolved it. The functions that sankara performs allow us to operate in the world, to get ourselves fed, to get ourselves clothed, housed, cured, paid, everything else that we need, and to help others to do the same, to send people to the moon, and to broadcast signals to the air, to lots of small uh, plastic devices, and all sorts of things. My attitude towards the sankharas over the years, I find, has become very much like um, the way that I dealt with my children when they were at that chatty stage. If you've been around kids that are uh, around kindergarten, preschool age, maybe about three, four, five, um, they go through a developmental stage pretty um, predictably where language really starts to take off, their vocabulary really starts to grow, they start making more complex sentences, their mental processes, their, san- their sankaras <laughs> are, are developing at a rapid speed. And they just have an intense need to express themselves. <laughs> they really need to talk, um, to play with language and to get their thoughts out and to be heard. Um, and they'll just go on and on and on. And occasionally kids of that age you know, will come out with some really fascinating, insightful observations. You know, they really do at times say the the most profound things or things that are just touchingly beautiful, you know, really um, lovely sentiments. Um, But honestly, most of the time, if you live with them, some of you know, (laughs) it's mostly just drivel. (laughs) The the gems are are rare. (laughs) You write them down in your journal and tuck them away. And there's also a lot of things that come out that you would probably rather that didn't come out. You know, this is the the potty talk age. You know, there's tantrums, uh, tattling, schoolyard pettiness that goes on. You know, they're not very mature yet. But as parents, we look on all of this with an attitude of just kind of benevolent tolerance, right? You know, because after all, they're only what like four years old. So we appreciate what's worth appreciating. And we try to, you know, redirect and curb the unwholesome tendencies and uh, just kind of look on all the drivel with uh, kind of loving equanimity. So I tend to relate to the thinking mind in much the same way, you know. It's very much like a four-year-old and how it operates. In some ways, we don't really move past that dynamic in our internal dialogue. (laughs) So the mind is really... You know, it's trying its best. You know, this is a big transformation when we can begin to see that the mind is, it's really trying to help. (laughs) It really is. It doesn't always seem like it, but it's doing its best. It just doesn't really understand most of the time what's going to be most helpful. Um, The mind really wants to support us. It wants us to be happy. It's a part of us, you know. Um, But it's just not clear because of ignorance. You know, it just just doesn't understand how, how to go about that. And so, you know, we end up with a lot of drivel (laughs) and potty talk and whatever else going on in the mind. But as we become more able to be aware of sankhara, um, then we're also more able, when it's appropriate, to say to the mind, you know, that's nice, honey, but let's find something else besides the matches to play with right now. Let's put the matches back in the drawer. Or whatever's appropriate, depending on what the mind is getting up to.
it's helpful to remember that mindfulness is much stronger than the unwholesome mental states that are driving our thoughts and emotions at those times. Mindfulness gets the last word with unwholesome sankharas. And this is a really important point in practice. When we're having unconscious, unwholesome sankharas, thoughts, emotions, then, we're, then that conditions more unwholesome sankharas. But when we're being mindful of unwholesome sankharas, that conditions mindfulness of unwholesome sankharas. So it's a different thing that's happening when mindfulness is present, which is what we want. We want to be learning to um, recognize. We want to be learning to perceive unwholesome mental processes so that we can distinguish them from what's wholesome and act them out less and less and ultimately become more and more disillusioned with them. We want to lose faith in those unwholesome sankharas, those unwholesome patterns, programs, as a strategy for happiness, because that's what will eventually loosen them and release them. So what we want to be happening in practice is a lot of awareness of the mind creating unwholesome sankharas. That's not the only thing that we want to be happening in practice, but it's a very important part of the process and one that we really do not want or enjoy. But there it is. That's the Dharma. Just through our willingness to keep showing up with all of that stuff, not struggling, not stopping, uh, we develop all sorts of beautiful and supportive qualities, usually without realizing it at the time. It's when we look back at those really difficult times in practice from a, a calmer place in our lives later on that we can see that those were the times that we were really learning compassion. Those were the times that we were really uh, coming to understand suffering in a deeper way. Those were the times that we were gradually learning patience and courage and acceptance and determination and how to be gentle with ourselves and how to be honest with ourselves and all sorts of other things that are worth learning. The sankharas are also conditioned, conditioned phenomena, conditioned mental processes, just like Vedana and Sanya. So how we think, what we think, is highly dependent on language, culture, family, life experience, just like everything else that arises. And the mind has a certain range based on how it's been conditioned. It has a certain range of movement of... uh, the, the scope of ideas, the scope of skills uh, that it's capable of based on how we've used it, how we've trained it, what's, and what it's encountered. So I might have the intention to start thinking in Urdu, but it's not going to happen. The, the causes and conditions aren't there for it. The mind hasn't been trained in that way. Uh, I might have the intention to interact with a perfect skillfulness and kindness with a particularly different, difficult person in my life. But again, it's not necessarily going to happen. The causes and conditions aren't there for it yet. Uh, I might have the intention to let go of some difficult memory that still torments me, some grudge I haven't let go of. But if the conditions aren't there for it, it's not going to happen. But we do have some range of motion, which is the, the important piece in working with Sankara. Uh, we do have some latitude for, for making cho- different choices, for
for applying sankhara in different ways. And we can stretch and extend that range of motion. This is one way of thinking about practice, is weakening the condition that keeps us stuck in uh, fabricating and constructing our ideas and thoughts and intentions and actions in certain ways over and over again, especially the unhealthy ways, the really constricted ways, so that we have more options, we have more range of choice. We can choose to apply the power of the mind in ways that lead to more happiness and less suffering. So this is how we cultivate happiness, just in a very ordinary, worldly, everyday way, which the Buddha highly recommended we do, that we uh, make good karma, that we earn merit, that we train the mind to operate more skillfully and more fully, operate within more of its potential, beginning with our mental activities. So just as with perception, Not all sankharas are created equal. Sankharas can contribute to ignorance or they can contribute to wisdom. They can be part of the process that contributes to suffering or part of the process that contributes to happiness or part of the process that contributes to equanimity. And again, it's the the volition part of the volitional formations that's the key to uh, the direction and the impact of our mental activity so the question is what's the quality of the intention what's the quality of the driving force or the influence that's giving rise to our various mental formations intention is an interesting aspect of sankhara uh, to tune into also which sometimes we work with uh, deliberately in practice Uh, intention is not quite thought as we normally understand it. It may manifest as thought. We may uh, break out into thought, uh, expressing verbally what our intention is, but it's more of a, this energetic impulse. You know, it's being fabricated by the mind. It's a sankhara, but it's not really at the level of complete conceptualization yet. So it can drive us very uh, unconsciously if, if it's not fully manifesting as thought. It's really driving everything that we do. Um, And it could be anything from very gross impulses to do something very strong physically, verbally, to uh, really subtle impulses just in how we use the mind. I remember um, uh, being assailed by the... the, I'm going to date myself here. I was going to say jukebox mind, but I guess we could say now like playlist mind, you know, where the, the mind just starts running through all your favorite songs, you know, or maybe not all your favorite songs, all the songs that you hated when you were young or, you know, commercials from the children's TV you used to watch or whatever, you know, that's, that's a really common phenomenon. Scenes of your favorite movies, the mind seems to just start spewing out whatever media we put in there. And at first... You know, as it's often the case, it was the case for me that it just felt, it really didn't feel like I was doing that. It felt like it was just totally involuntary, that the mind was just spewing it out because things were kind of quiet. But then as I paid more attention to it, I gradually began to see that, oh no, <laughs> I am actually doing that. You know, not I'm doing it, but it's being done. It's being done by this mind. There is actually an active volition there, intention, uh, keeping that 
that stream of stimulation going because there's some, there's some liking of it, there's some wanting for it on a very subtle level. So intentions can get very subtle just having to do with directing you know, the most uh, quiet of our mental activities. So whether they're gross or whether they're subtle, they might arise from wholesome mental qualities uh, like the Brahma Viharas, kindness, compassion, gratitude, equanimity, um, from the factors of awakening, you know, mindfulness, joy, concentration, from the paramis, other wholesome qualities. So, so any kind of intentions arising from wholesome mental qualities will inspire wholesome thoughts, wholesome intentions, wholesome emotions, uh, which will then lead to pleasant experiences. Because when the mind is dominated by those qualities, it feels nice. Or intentions might arise from the various manifestings, manifestations of craving, aversion, and delusion. <laughs> the various manifestations of the hindrances, the torments, the defilements, which will inspire unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome emotions, unwholesome intentions, uh, which tend to lead to unpleasant experiences because they don't feel good. The Eightfold Path Factor of Right Intention, Sama Sankapa, has to do specifically with cultivating wholesome intentions, wholesome aspirations. So the Buddha thought this was an important enough area of the path that he gave it its whole own category, the cultivation of wholesome aspiration, wholesome volition. The practice of transforming our motivations from uh, the unwholesome intentions rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion to intentions rooted in in the three wholesome uh, motivations of kindness, compassion, renunciation. So this is one of the reasons why we do the metta practice. The metta practice is a a direct uh, practice aimed at this aspect of the path, explicitly designed to transform our motivations, to transform our intentions and our aspirations. So in whatever way that we cultivate that, it's a, it's a really important part of the path. Through mindfulness of sankharas, we come to see that it really is true, not just in theory, but directly, that when the mind is dominated by unwholesome qualities, unwholesome mental factors, that one way or another, we get into trouble. <laughs> we find ourselves in trouble. Things start going on in the mind that are just simply not fun. <laughs> They're not pleasant, that we don't like them, they're not nice. And if we're out there in the world dominated by those mental states, then we probably start to become not so much fun to be around for the others that we come into contact with. On the other hand, when the mind is filled with wholesome emotions, uh, when it's filled with kindness, generosity, equanimity, calm, uh, then everything becomes easier and everything becomes nicer. It becomes more pleasant. I think Caroline mentioned this, but I find it so interesting still that compassion is a pleasant emotion. You know, it's, it's so counterintuitive. And it can actually be uh, somewhat confusing that in the face of suffering we actually feel pleasure. But that's the nature of compassion. Uh, it's not, not pleasure that there's suffering happening, but it's the, the pleasure of being really connected, being really in touch, being really present. Uh, that kind of, of uh, unworldly feeling that comes from the quality of mind itself that's open, that's caring, that's connected. And that's why compassion 
allows us to be more effective in the face of suffering. It's the pleasant feeling that keeps us from getting burned out. You know, pain, 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 it burns us out, as we all see very clearly here. The pleasant feeling sustains us. It's interesting to see how people respond to us when we come out from retreat. Um, Of course, not all of us are going back into situations where, unfortunately, those that are nearest and dearest to us are necessarily going to be so receptive to the benefits of our practice. That's just, you know, the way that it is for some of us. Some of us will, and that's a blessing. (laughs) But even just in ordinary interactions, you know, going back into the workplace, uh, going back into our communities, the bank, the grocery store, whatever, uh, interacting with people on the roads, (laughs) you know, it's really interesting to see um, how the the wholesome quality of the mind really changes um, both how we are in those situations and how we're perceived in those situations. Um, My kids are always really excited to see me when I come out from retreat. (laughs) I get get a lot more snuggles and they want to do things with me and hang out. My uh, teenager said to me uh, recently after a retreat, you seem so happy when you get back from a retreat. <laughs> so I'm not sure what that says about how I seem the rest of the time. Um, and I have one friend uh, that always wants to get together shortly after I get back from retreat. <laughs> I wasn't sure what was going on with that for a while, uh, but then, then she dropped a little hint at one point that I think she finds me better company after I'm recently out of retreat. <laughs> So we get to see in those uh, first days out of retreat uh, the effect of having a mind that's much more on the wholesome side of the equation, you know, where the mental factors, the sankharas, are more weighted towards the wholesome side. It really makes a difference, both in how we see things through our own eyes and in how, how others see us through their eyes. So we gradually learn to place our faith and our trust in sama sankapa, in, in right, intent, right in, intention and skillful aspiration, that there really is no situation in which those are not the best answer, not the best approach. Uh, oftentimes people come with questions about that. You know, that we get a lot of questions like, well, if I give up attachment, what's going to happen to my relationships? You know, I'm going to stop loving my partner or stop loving my children, my family, my friends. You know, those relationships are based on attachment. And I don't want to give that up. You know, this is something that comes up. And I've been investigating that really very actively uh, in my family life um, because I don't get so much time for retreat like you guys are doing now. But I've been working working the other angles, (laughs) working with sila, working with intention. So I I reflect a lot. Um, Is there any situation with the people that I love, the people that are important to me, where they would not be better served by my metta than by my attachment? That's that's kind of a koan for me. Um, I check that out a lot. So rather than thinking in terms of you know, what's going to happen to my relationships if there's the total eradication of attachment, approaching it from a more practical, more concrete side of, you know, in this particular situation, you know, that's, that's difficult or that's lovely or that's just neutral, um, is there any way in which my attachment is adding to that? Is there any way in which my attachment is helping either me or the other people that I'm here with? Um, and so far... I can't say that I've really found any. <laughs> you know, there just doesn't really seem to be a situation in which kindness is not helpful 
for myself or for others, you know, which compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity are not helpful and preferable to feelings that come out of craving, aversion, and confusion. Learning how to pick up on the, um, the markers, the signposts that signal wholesome and, un- and unwholesome sankharas, wholesome and unwholesome mental fabrications, um, is really useful. It's a really um, transferable skill that we gain through our practice. Um, those markers might be uh, sensations in the body, uh, particular types or qualities of thought, the feeling tone, uh, the emotional tone, uh, whatever it is in physical and mental experience that sends up a red flag of this is wholesome or this is unwholesome. That's part of the development of uh, wise perceptions that I spoke about last week, you know, learning to, to see what is wholesome, learning to be able to recognize quickly, easily, what is, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, so that we can incorporate that into our daily life. Um, because the contents of our thoughts don't always tell the intentions behind our thoughts. So this is something that we see in practice that, again, I find very interesting. So we may have you know, the exact same thought, and it might be motivated by craving, or it might be motivated by loving-kindness. You know, a lot of the thoughts I have around my kids, I explore this. You know, so I might have a wish for them to do well on their test. <laughs> You know, I might have the thought, gee, I really hope they do well on this test. That can be coming from a place of genuine loving kindness, you know, wanting them to be well-educated, be able to make their way in the world, take care of themselves. Uh, or it can be coming from a place of total craving, <laughs> you know, wanting them to you know, do me proud and prove my worth as a parent and give me something to boast about and all of that. So thoughts don't always uh, tell us exactly what's going on. They can be a little sneaky. Part of, um, last week I spoke a little bit about my long process of learning to connect with my emotions and identify my actual emotional experiences. And um, one experience I had as I was going through that process was um, I was sitting one long retreat and I kept having... Um, obsessive thoughts over and over again, uh, planning a dinner party, <laughs> which was something I liked to do in those days. Not so much now. Um, so I was planning this dinner party for like my closest friends, uh, the people that I really like to spend time with, and I was just going over and over these thoughts, like planning, like, okay, how would I decorate, and what would I serve, and who would I invite, and just going over and over and over it again. But, but uh, you know, trying to check in with the emotion associated with that, I didn't. It wasn't actually seeming like it was unwholesome. There wasn't that contraction, you know, the, the leaning in that I was starting to notice came with uh, thoughts associated with craving. And after this went on for a number of days, I kept coming back to this, uh, to, to, to this theme in my thoughts. I started to notice that the, the, um, the emotional tone behind it was actually metta. <laughs> The, the, the mind had started doing this kind of spontaneous metta meditation. I hadn't learned metta meditation at that point. But the heart was kind of wanting to open and feel warm and feel a sense of connection. And so it was, it was using these thoughts of planning a dinner party as a way of like, you know, remembering how much I love my friends and wouldn't it be nice to, to give them happiness and joy and pleasure. And so it was this very odd, turned into this very odd kind of metta meditation. But so again, the, the content of the thoughts weren't telling the story of what was going on really in the heart. 
through mindfulness of, of our thoughts, the other sankharas, we learn to be able to discern the wholesome and the unwholesome mental states in, in this more kinesthetic kind of way, a more whole system, systematic, holistic kind of way, rather than having to be you know, super mindful in this very sensitive and precise way that we're doing here in this particular laboratory of mindfulness. Um, back in our ordinary lives, that's not practical. It's too cumbersome. We might be able to do a little bit of it here and there, um, but we need to be able to quickly perceive perceive wholesome and unwholesome, just recognize it based on its signs, based on its distinguishing features. So that's part of the information that we're gathering here. So then as we move through our daily lives, we don't have to constantly be figuring out, okay, is this wholesome? Is this unwholesome? What's my motivation here? You know, we may at times, again, but we want more and more for that to become an automatic recognition there's, there's some sensation around the heart or in the body or some texture in the mind, and we just know very quickly, uh-oh, something unwholesome going on here. Or, oh, something wholesome going on here. So that becomes more and more of an integrated way, part of our default way of our being in the world. It's an aspect of wisdom. So our mental formations play a role in our suffering, they play a role in our happiness, and they can also play a role in our awakening. I remember um, Sayadu Pandita, who some of us have practiced with past decades, telling a parable once about three kinds of people. So one person sits under an apple tree, or maybe it was a mango tree in Asia, some kind of fruit tree, and a piece of fruit falls on their head, and the mental formation arises, mmm, yum. <laughs> That's one kind of person. Another person sits under the fruit tree, and fruit falls on their head, and they think, hmm, gravity. And then a third kind of person sits under the fruit tree, fruit falls on their head, and they think, hmm, impermanence. <laughs> Different types of mental fabrications, different types of formations, having different types of of effects. Each of those strands will have different effects. So being here and doing this practice uh, takes a tremendous amount of volitional mental activity to do what you guys are doing here now. It's an incredibly intentional, purposeful volitional activity, very much so, very powerful intention required to do this. Um, Even just the mundane aspect, arranging things to be able to get here and then managing to arrange things so that they work while you're here and then managing to arrange things to get yourself back home. Even just that part of it is pretty intense. But there's also a huge amount of very intentional mental activity involved in the meditation itself going on all day long, you know, reminding ourselves to be mindful. How many times a day do we do that? <laughs> Lots of formations around that. Um, giving ourselves instruct- the instructions, reminding ourselves of the instructions, what to do with the mind, how to deal with challenges that come up, how to approach different situations, different activities. Um, encouraging ourselves. Right? We have to give ourselves little like mini pep talks all day long right, to keep going in different kinds of ways. Um, so really, we're, we're our own main meditation teacher. You know? <laughs> the 
we're, we're the one that we get the most input from in terms of the teachings, in terms of the, the inspiration, and everything that we need to remember in order to do this. So we have to also have cultivated enough skill, you know, which all of us here have done. We have to have learned enough about the teachings, synthesized those, figured out how they work for us, um, to be able to practice in this very unstructured, independent kind of way. That also takes a tremendous amount of volitional activity. So it's not at all that we want to stop thinking, but we want to be training the thinking mind to work with us rather than against us. We want to be training it to be more skillful, to be more supportive, to be more helpful. That's why the attitude that we bring to practice is so important. The intention driving how we approach experience, which we invariably come up against as we do this practice. We see how uh, if unwholesome mental states, like striving, judgment, fear, uh, whatever it might be, are, are coloring and directing how we're paying attention without our being mindful of them, without our being mindful of them. Uh, then those mental states can inadvertently uh, be reinforced. They can actually get stronger because of our meditation. Uh, Our our practice can ironically become a tool for uh, perpetuating wrong views that we may have about ourselves. One of the ways that we cling to sankharas is simply through believing them. So actually, probably the main way that we cling to them is by believing them, buying into what they're telling us, buying into that constructed version of reality, uh, which is really an aspect of, of ignorance. So not seeing that all the thoughts and intentions and emotions and little bit, bits and pieces of activity, volitional activity flitting through the mind, are just passing mental phenomena, just like physical sensations, just like sounds, just like anything else and that they don't have any inherent substance, any core, any truth. They're anatta, they're impersonal, just like everything else. One of the investigations I find really fascinating around thought is which thoughts do I believe? You know, this is a really interesting investigation. So there may be a whole series of thoughts that go by about the weather, you know, the dog, you know, just, you know, random things that are clearly just, you know, made up stories without any particular significance. Um, or even things, things that are a little heavier, you know, at a certain point, personal memories, things that have been difficult in the past may come up and we know those. We've seen them enough. Okay, yeah, that's also just a passing story. But then at some point, something comes up and we bite the hook, right, of that one. That one's really true, yeah. I better give that one some time, right? So why that one? It's really interesting. Oftentimes it's something uh, kind of deep, especially here in retreat. It's something about me, my life, my history, my spiritual practice, right? Yeah, that one. That one's really important. Got to go with that. So because of ignorance and clinging in that particular area, we haven't quite sorted that aspect of of Sankara out yet. We grab hold and the heart says, yeah, that one is true. That one is real. Which is not usually a conscious thought. It's not a conscious 
decision that we make. It's, it's a perception. The thought arises and there's that recognition. That one seems true. That one seems solid. That one seems permanent. That one seems like self. The perversions of perception. And usually, again, we don't realize it until we're 10, 30, 60 minutes down the road and we come out of it and we see that we totally bit the hook. <laughs> so then, you know, start over again. Say, okay, I got caught that, one, that time. You caught me, Mara, that time. But can we imagine what it might be like to really see the emptiness of all sankaras? Can we imagine that? All thoughts, all emotions, all intentions, all of that extra mental activity. What would it be like to really uh, inhabit a mind that was clear, that was wise about the inherent emptiness of those? So not to stop thinking, not to stop feeling, not to stop engaging with the creations of the mind, or to stop using the mind to do what we need to do, but to stop believing them as truth in some absolute way, to set down that burden, that burden of carrying all of those stories, which we all intuit as the way to freedom. The Buddha gave this simile for the nature of sankhara, uh, which is somewhat meaningful to me since my daughter was studying uh, botany this past school year. And we went to the... To the um, the National uh, Botanic Garden uh, downtown Washington, D.C., which is fabulous, where they have this, these gigantic banana trees that they grow indoors. And we learned that a banana tree is actually like a large grass. <laughs> it's just an overgrown daffodil or something. So the, the Buddha gave the simile for the nature of sankhara. Suppose that a person desiring heartwood, in quest of heartwood, seeking heartwood, were to go into a forest carrying a sharp axe, There they would see a large banana tree, straight, young, of enormous height. They would cut it at the root and chop off the top and peel away the outer skin. But there they wouldn't even find sapwood, to say nothing of heartwood. Then it would appear empty, void, and without substance. For what substance can there be in a banana tree? In the same way a yogi sees, observes, and appropriately examines any mental fabrications that are past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, seeing them, observing them, and appropriately examining them, they appear empty, void, and without substance. For what substance can there be in mental fabrications?" (laughs) 